Blog Talk Radio. Choices, decisions, frustrations, and pain. Knowing I'm going to forget her someday. While I still can, I'll challenge all my loved ones, every friend, to look inside their hearts and understand that I. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm the founder of Alzheimer's Speaks, which is an um, advocacy group based in Minnesota, providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort worldwide. So we're just thrilled to death that you're with us today. Um, if by chance you have to scoot, remember all of these episodes are archived, so you can go ahead and listen Later, if something comes up, and you can always go ahead and share them with your friends. Um, we appreciate your, your likes and your tweets uh, because, again, we're in this boat together about shifting our care culture and uh, spreading the knowledge that's available um, and sharing worldwide. We believe by joining forces and, again, sharing that knowledge um, and having just these everyday conversations that we do on Alzheimer's Speaks Radio and our blog and through our dementia chats, that we can really improve things. We can remove the stigmas attached to memory loss, and we can help people in the trenches take back their lives with purpose. Um, Together, we can help everybody understand the true needs of this disease. And at our core, collaboratively, we can win this battle. I know we can. Um, And again, I I want to thank our audience as well, because we um, were... Uh, recognized as the number one influencer online for Alzheimer's by Sharecare and Dr. Oz, which was just a a marvelous recognition. And again, that would not be possible without all of you being so actively supportive of what Alzheimer's Speaks is doing. So again, thank you so much for that. We're about raising awareness and, again, giving voice to those who are afflicted with memory loss as well as their care partners and advocates and business professionals supporting dementia and um, sharing best practices, what works and what doesn't work. Rick Phelps is our um, channel expert, and I don't know if he'll be able to tune in today and, and join us. Rick has early onset Alzheimer's disease, known as EOAD, and he pops in when his schedule allows him to do so. And uh, so, again, if Rick pops in, I'll definitely pull him into the show. He's the founder of Memory People, which is a support uh, group, uh, a closed support group on Facebook. Um, so if you haven't checked that out, that's something that you may may be interested in doing. Um, I want to let you also know that if you are interested in joining the conversation here, it's really quite simple. You can use the chat box to make a, uh, pose a question or ask a comment, or you can call into our phone number, which is uh, 714-364-4757. Again, that's 714 714- 
364-4757. And I want to also thank Alzheimer's Disease International just for their support. We're going to be having them on the show from their uh, conference in Asia, which will be really interesting on April uh, 18th. So if you're looking for an Alzheimer's Association anywhere in the world, that's a great place to be able to go ahead and just uh, just zone in and find <clears throat> find what you're looking for. Today's show, we're going to be talking about uh, transgender needs um, with dementia. And so, you know, with this particular group, I mean, they're they're getting a double whammy. And so, it's really important, I think, to have this discussion today. So, I'm very excited to introduce. We've got three guests with us today. Um, And the first I'm going to introduce is Kay Fox. And Kay was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease in 2008 at the age of 66. Early in her career, she worked as an aerospace um, engineer, and she contributed to the Gemini and Apollo space program. And before retiring, she worked as a pastor as well at a um, Christian rescue mission in uh, Rochester, New York. In 2007 is when Kay really started to notice some of the changes in her ability. And we'll we'll talk more about that um, within the program. She is currently a member of the National 2012 uh, Early Stage Advisory Group. And she's extremely interested in advocating for support groups that concentrate on living with the disease and planning for the future, and more specifically, as a transsexual woman, Kay's special interest is in developing a safe meeting place for people um, who who are transgender. So welcome to the show, Kay. I just realized I have to unmute you here. So how are you doing today, today Kay? I'm doing fine. Thank you for the introduction. Well, wonderful. Day. Well, great. I'm going to go ahead and introduce our other uh, two guests um, uh, versus doing it kind of throughout the show. I think we'll just go ahead and do our introductions up front. Our next guest that I want to introduce is Sam Wiley. And Sam uh, is a case manager, and he is a certified information and referral specialist. He's worked over 12 years in aging and disabilities field, and he's worked extensively with individuals and families uh, involving disabilities, mental health, and Alzheimer's disease, along with other related dementia. He has held jobs on the Council of Aging and the Department of Social Services, Adult Protection Services, and the Area um, Agency on Aging. Currently, Sam is the Vice President of Programs and uh, with the Alzheimer's Association in South Carolina. So welcome, Sam. How are you today? I'm I'm doing well, Lori. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Um, From here, I'm going to go ahead and introduce Lisa. And Lisa Fox um, is Kay's partner. And they met when, when Kay was volunteering at the Open Door Mission so they have known each other about 32 years. And when Lisa first met Kay, Kay was a man. Um, and then she discovered she was transgender in 2000. They've been legally married for t- uh, 10 years. And um, Lisa has been her caregiver, has been Kay's caregiver. And she's going to talk about how that's taken a toll on her health and how she's able to support 
Kate in this role and what she sees some of the needs being. So welcome, Lisa. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me on. Well, great. I'm I'm ex- I'm really excited to have this conversation because I just think it's so important. I also think it's very confusing the terminology. So I'm going to start, um, you know, at base one, and um, let's have Kay, if you don't mind, talk a little bit about what are the terms. What really is transgender? And and Kay, can you define transgender for us? Well, transgender is a umbrella word that uh, covers a multitude of uh, uh, other words. Uh, we often read about and hear in the newspapers, or not hear in the newspaper, read in the newspapers, and hear on radio and TV um, the letters GLBT. Um, and briefly, uh, that's a common uh, term that's used to, to describe uh, uh, someone who uh, is under this umbrella, and um, the G stands for gay, and that may be a male or female, but it usually refers to a male, and and the the draw on that is the same sex, male to male. Um, there are many people that are gay uh, who are married uh, and uh, in states where it's legal and um, are also have families and raising children uh, by adoption. And L is stands for lesbian, and that of course refers to f- female and. Uh, and same-sex relationship, female to female. And they, too, uh, in, in some states, are, are married uh, and, and or living together in other states. Uh, and they, too, also have had children. Uh, sometimes uh, uh, one or the other uh, become becomes pregnant by a, a surrogate and bears uh, a child and brings it into the family. And then we have bisexual, the B part. And uh, bisexual means that uh, the person lives uh, with either sex. Uh, and presents as either sex, male or female, and they may may or may not float back and forth uh, frequently, uh, they, depending on how they uh, they are feeling at that particular moment or time. Uh, and finally, the T in GLBT is transgendered, and. Uh, that may be a male changing their genetic sex, uh, not changing their genetic sex, but changing their presentation uh, from female or less frequently female to male. And um, 
this can require extensive surgery and uh, hormone therapy, counseling, and uh, uh, a whole host of other things. Uh, and as you were indicated earlier, I am a, a transsexual clergywoman, uh, uh, and uh, um, legally and. Uh, um, it, it's uh, there are other titles that go along under this umbrella of of uh, of uh, transgender. You can have uh, she sex, he sex. Uh, you can have uh, uh, intersex. There's, there's a whole host of things that I won't going naming them all. Um, but uh, to become transsexual entails surgery, and, uh, which is either partially or completely re reconstruction of the sexual organs and components. And it also requires extensive counseling of uh, uh, a number of years. And um, with a specialist who is an expert in gender counseling, and uh, and it's followed along by both a medical doctor and a psychiatrist. It uh, all of that takes place two to three, maybe four years um, before any surgery is done. And as I indicated, uh, I am a transsexual woman. Um, overall, these terms uh, that we're discussing fall under what are called gender identity dysphoria, which is a fancy name the medical community has given to it, and it's a new name uh, which is found in their medical Bible, so to speak, DMS-5, which just was released uh, and published. Uh, prior to that, uh, transsexualism was uh, considered to be a disease, and uh, now they they have removed that stigma of disease because uh, uh, of a, a number of different conflicts that have gone on and uh, have attached the uh, uh, term gender identity dysphoria. Um, and uh, the, the medical community has now agreed both the psychiatric uh, and psychology and uh, uh, the AMA as, that um, transgenderism is considered a pre-birth condition. It's uh, part of a development in the womb and is not a disease. Okay. And, uh, it, and the other thing, it's not curable. Uh, okay. It's, it's sort of, to illustrate it, it's sort of like being born with a cleft lip. Um, and the baby is born with that cleft lip and surgery can correct that cleft lip and surgery can also alter the sexual organs of a transgender person 
and uh, uh, bring them into congruency with uh, the the sex that uh, was always there. Okay. So it, it gets rid of the the theory that this is just a choice that people are making. There's there's really a a physical um, you know attribute in terms of of why these these needs and feelings and so forth are there. So wonderful. I'm going to go ahead, Kate, and pull um, Sam into the conversation here um, because I want to find out um, you know what the Alzheimer's Association you know how they how they view. Um, this cohort group and what they're what they're looking to do to make some changes um, within their organization to be able to supply support. So, Sam, can you discuss a little bit of you know why why uh, it's important to address this community need? Yeah, I, I can. Um, you know, we all come from different backgrounds, different religions, and. Uh, because we all need very specific things in our life, uh, Alzheimer's affects everyone differently. And so what we are recognizing is that, and understanding is that, um, we have to be able to identify the specific needs that individuals have in order for us to better serve those individuals. And clearly with the LGBT communities, um, there are specific needs. And for better for us to understand how we can bring the needs to the LGBT communities, uh, we need to know more about uh, what those needs are. And so we as an association are uh, really trying to learn more uh, nationally, uh, even within our own chapters, chapters nationwide, to be able to currently identify needs, learn what they are, and so we can set up the right proper amount of support and care that these families need in order to uh, help them as they go through not only the families but the individuals themselves in order to help them uh, as they're affected with uh, Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. Now, um, I know the Alzheimer's Association does like an annual diversity and inclusion report. Um, Were there any statistics there that you wanted to share or kind of summary? Actually, we, we have... We do have a report. Unfortunately, and I'll, my fault is I was not able to get that report from our national office uh, at this point in time. Uh, that is something that I'm looking to try it with, but we will have that information as soon as uh, we can, and I can uh, be able to share that with you, Lori, as we go forward um, for any of your listeners that would like to have any more information on that uh, in the future. Okay. That would, that would be That would be absolutely wonderful. Uh, to be able to have that. I'm going to go ahead and um, pull Kay back into the conversation here. And um, Kay, can you give us a little kind of back history on yourself, Um, you know, what life was like for you, and and how did you transition, um, you know, to be a transsexual? So can you kind of paint a picture for us of of your life, just kind of a snapshot so that people have a little... um, Better understanding. Sure, I'll be glad to. Um, uh, I, not long after I was born, I was about well, seven or eight years. I knew that I wanted to be a, a pastor, and um, 
And then several years later, I uh, noticed that there was a there was a difference uh, in in my activities and interaction with other people, with other kids my age, and I tended to uh, uh, gravitate to uh, females rather than to males, and uh, would love to play with dolls and things of that nature, and uh, and I had a, a a girl living next door to me, and she and I uh, played together quite a bit. Um, I that went on for a number of years, uh, and uh, all the way through uh, through high school, because I, I knew I was different, um, and I felt that there was a battle going on inside of me. Uh, it's like uh, a tug of war between two uh, combatants. And um, as I grew up and as I progressed and uh, went into the work world, um, this battle kept on going uh, inside of me. And uh, even when I was working, as you mentioned, with uh, spacesuits and and things of this nature, as well as... uh, a number of other uh, positions, um, and then finally got ordained and had my childhood dream of being a pastor. Uh, and I was, and I, I ran a mission for 35 years, which uh, went from an $11,000. Uh, operation to when I retired, $3.5 million operation being funded only by the public and uh, no foundations or or United Way. And uh, we had a multitude of programs. Um, I was out at work uh, and what happened was uh, during this battle that was going on, I had been seeing a gender counselor uh, in Syracuse, uh, or near Syracuse, uh, who uh, uh, was working with me on uh, identifying my feelings and, and, you know, and direction and things of this nature, and whether they were genuine or whether just exactly what was going on inside of me. Um, and I was doing this all during the time that I uh, was working at the, uh, at the mission. And, uh, okay, can I, I, I'm going to interrupt you a second now. During this time, were you, were you previously married then? I was, you were, yes. Okay, so you're married and, fact, you, and you had... It had yeah, children I, too, I, correct? I I was married and I had six children. Okay. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And um, uh, one day uh, I was in my office and uh, there was a knock on the door and in came uh, my uh, ex-wife and uh, the board president of the board of directors. And um, suddenly my whole life got turned upside down because 
uh, I was outed as a uh, transsexual and um, and was immediately placed uh, on a sabbatical, which turned into a, uh, a dismissal uh, semi-retirement program. Um, the whole thing going on through the, my life was that there was stigma, two stigmas attached. One was the stigma that, uh, you know, I, I was presenting genetically uh, a male, uh, and uh, which I wanted to get rid of desperately, and uh, didn't do so because I was afraid of, of what people thought and what they would do. Um, and um, working in the Christian work world, uh, I knew it would not uh, fly very well. And so, so I, uh, uh, you know, I, I kept it under wraps, but I kept fighting it, and uh, and yet desperately felt like it, it had to come out. And uh, a stigma, if if you're familiar with the word, it's. Uh, uh, comes from Latin, which means point, and it uses that. It, it or the origin of it was that they used to brand people that way. They would take a stick and they would brand them with a dot, sort of like uh, the scarlet letter. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, this stigma, you know, uh, stayed with me. And, and the fear of it coming out and people uh, deserting me and my friends and so on and so forth, and my reputation because I was very well known in the community and nationally and, and internationally. Uh, and so I, I kept trying to uh, submerge this, this feeling, this urge, uh, of making a transition, and uh, that battle kept on going, and uh, and so consequently, uh, finally, after uh, those many years, uh, I started to go to counseling uh, to a gender counselor uh, who was outside of Rochester because I didn't want to. Uh, deal with anyone in Rochester in, in fear of something that might leak out. And um, we worked through all the dynamics of uh, of uh, the counseling uh, regime for uh, gender dysphoria. And um, the conclusion was that I actually was female in a male body. Um and, and what uh, was that like when you when you got that diagnosis finally? How did that feel? Uh, I was relieved. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, finally, I had a diagnosis from some somebody who was an expert and who who knew what they were talking about, and that it wasn't just a fantasy of mind or. Or a wishful thinking type of thing. It wasn't a cross-dressing type of issue, but it was a real issue. And uh, during the counseling, I came, became knowledgeable about how all of that took place and 
and, and from birth on. And um, so I felt I felt relieved about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was still okay. male, uh, and I, you know, and I still worked at the mission all during the time that I had that counseling, and until I was finally uh, uh, retired. <laughs> and uh, when I was retired, I came I came out full time. Uh, okay. I had written so- a couple. I've written a couple of letters to some friends of mine. One happened to be a, a, a radio program uh, director, and the next thing I know is he put it on the air on a 50,000-watt clear channel station, which reached 39 states, and the next net result was that everybody knew. And uh, so for... That day, um, I had television trucks and radio and so on and so forth at my house doing interviews up until 11 o'clock at night uh, talking about transgenderism and uh, being a transsexual. And, okay. Um, so that, that, that brings me to that you know, point in my life where I was now... <clears throat> Fully out. I didn't have to explain to anybody because everybody knew. Um, okay. And, well, and it was a talk of the town. <laughs> let's let's go ahead and pull Lisa into the conversation here because I want to um, talk about um, seeing some changes within you in terms of memory loss and the dementia. So, uh, Lisa, are you with us? Yes. Okay. Um, can you tell us when you started seeing some changes in Kay and, and you know, give us maybe some examples? Um, it was probably in early 2007. Um, things were, she would forget where things were. She would forget um, what day of the week it was. Um, was she still able to drive and um, maneuver independently? Um, she was able to drive. Um, she was okay. allowed to drive, so we went to when we the neurologist that we were seeing here in South Carolina, said that um, she needed to have a guardian and conservator, and um, the judge in the probate court in Charleston County then revoked her driving privileges. Um, She would get lost, make wrong turns, not know where she was. Um, Can't imagine being a passenger with somebody who doesn't know where the heck they're going. Mhm. Yeah, and and everybody with dementia is a little bit a little bit different in terms of their driving capabilities and and things. I know the doctors will even even say that, and that's why a lot of the the counties and stuff are doing testing and retesting and things there. How about you, Kay? What kind of um, what kind of things were you noticing that that caused you to go get diagnosed? Um, 
Well, when I was working uh, towards the end of my my uh, career at the mission, I noticed that I was forgetting things. Uh, and uh, I was a kind of person where you wa- wind me up, watch me talk, and it wasn't unusual, like on a Sunday, for me to speak in uh, two churches and, and, and my own. And then um, I had Bible studies and things like that, but I was finding it difficult to to research what I wanted to do and what I wanted to say and put it down on paper. And um, I would be forgetful. Um Towards the end, I would forget appointments uh, in my busy schedule, and uh, you know they just drift right by, and I never knew it uh, mm-hmm. until I got a call. And um, as I look back on that, uh, from where I am today, I think all of this really began. Uh, probably 10 to 15 years prior to the time that I was diagnosed uh, uh, with uh, dementia. Okay, uh, and that's pretty common. People will say that they'll they'll see signs, you know, way, way ahead, you know, ahead of time. Right. Um, but you don't notice them because they're small and they're minute and they're not kind of connected and they're not really interfering with your daily life as a whole, or you don't think that they are. Um, so when you went to the doctor to, to get the diagnosis um, of dementia, you know, how, how did that process go? Was it a, um, you know, how, did, how were the doctors? Sometimes people really struggle with how they're treated um, by the physicians. Did you have a good relationship with your doctors or...? Well, I had yes, I, I had a very good relationship. Uh, when I was living in Rochester, New York, for ten years, I on weekends uh, while I was working for the mission, I I was also the uh, hospital chaplain uh, of an inner city hospital, and uh, so I had many opportunities to after inter- interact with. Uh, uh, patients that uh, uh, had dementia, uh, and so I was not unfamiliar with what was going on, and um, my re- my relationship was with my doctors was very, very good, because uh, uh, I could talk their language and still, and we'd be on the same page. Um, so I you know, I knew what dementia was and specifically what Alzheimer's was, and I knew the path that it took uh, and, and followed. Um, and uh, those people that, you know, I, I ministered to those people that uh, had or with dementia. And uh, uh, so I, I was not foreign to that at all uh, and uh, my relationship with my psychiatrist and my psychologist, my primary care physician and uh, my uh, 
uh, neurologist was uh, all was excellent, um, and uh, uh, and when I when I got the the diagnosis, um, uh, I had just gone through several medical experiences. One was I had cancer and was operated on for that, and then I had a, uh, a respiratory infection that hospitalized me for over a week or so, and. Um, you know, so all of those things combined uh, uh, were, were, you know, uh, things pretty to be major. concerned about. Yep, Pardon? yep. I, I, all pretty major, major situations um, that you that you had to deal with. When you actually heard the words, was is there anything that kind of went through your mind at the time when they said you have dementia? Uh, yeah, I, I guess the first thing that went through my mind was, well, that figures. Uh, I I was not. Uh, I I I didn't get all depressed and weepy and so on and so forth about that diagnosis because I had been trained for many years as an engineer and as a clergy person and having worked with people that had Alzheimer's, uh, it, it it was just a, another bump in my road of life. And mm-hmm. um, so it didn't, um, quite frankly, it didn't really... Um, didn't throw you for a little bit, sounds panic. like. Yeah. Okay. Lisa, I, I, how about... I accept... I accepted mm-hmm. it and uh and uh you know and moved on. Okay. Lisa, how 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 did it affect you when you when you heard the diagnosis? Um, it was pretty devastating. Um oh. I didn't know a lot about it. I know a lot more about the disease and its progression. Um mm-hmm. and uh being a caregiver is very stressful. And it has, unfortunately, adversely affected my health. I have ulcerative colitis. I had that as a child. I was in remission for almost 30 years, and two years ago it resurfaced, and now I'm on some pretty heavy-duty medications to try and bring things under control. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm fatigued a lot of the time. It's been stressful and handling some of the financial aspects due to our specific situation and also, you know, getting Kay to take her meds, getting her to eat, getting her to drink enough. Um, it, it just, wear, it just you know, it wears me down. So it's, yeah, probably, and it, probably it's not uncommon. Too. <laughs> yeah, it's not uncommon for a caregiver to feel overwhelmed um, and for it to start affecting their health, that is that's extremely, extremely common. Um, Kay, I'd like to ask you um, first, and then I'll come back to Lisa on this, but Kay, can you address what do you feel are the specialized needs of the transgender population when it comes to to memory loss? Well, again, it's uh, for them, for the 
our community of GLBT, etc., people that have Alzheimer's and are also fighting a gender identity, um, it's a double stigma to that. And um, a considerable number of them stay in the closet, so to speak. They uh, don't come out. They don't participate in anything. They um, play a role of you know, whatever uh, uh, genetic uh, birth that they have, even though they, they, they like I did, always fight, uh, you know, the battle going on inside uh, between, the, between the two. Um, so the problem is uh, coming out as... Uh, as a GLBT person, is the stigma that's attached to that, and and the loss of friends and, and uh, uh, things like that, and it's more pronounced in the transgendered community because it's more noticeable. Um, you don't necessarily notice uh, gay or lesbian folks in in the community unless they're very. Uh, outwardly affectionate with each other. Um, whereas a tra- transgendered person makes a total, complete change mm-hmm. um, and, pre- and presentation. And so there are a lot of transgendered uh, uh, folks that just are staying in the closet simply because of the fact uh, of the stigma that's attached to that, and it's, it's you know, it, it, it's the same as it is with, with Alzheimer's. Um, you know, that that's a close parallel to what goes on in, uh, with a person as it does with a person that has Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very common for people to say how isolated they feel and people pull away and don't understand. And so to get uh, fed, I can't even imagine the double isolation um, effect because uh, one layer of it is, is more more than anyone should have to bear um, in their in their lifetime. And then to, you know, have a second one put upon you, um, I just, I can't even imagine uh, from a mental health standpoint. And in my case, when I came out, I lost my family. Mm-hmm. Um, now I have two children that will talk talk uh-huh. to me, uh, but the rest won't have anything to do with me, and um, you know, won't answer emails or acknowledge cards or anything. And um, the uh, one of the interesting things was that when I came out, uh, the person that I was the most afraid of telling uh, was my mother, and uh-huh. uh, and uh, she was in an assisted living uh, facility, and so finally one day I decided I just had to tell her, and I did that. And when I told her about it, she turned around. And she turned around and responded uh, back to me. Well, 
that explains a lot of things. And that mm-hmm. floored me. Uh, she didn't get upset or anything else. Um, she was later interviewed for a news report uh, and uh, things like that. And she stood by me uh, through all of this that I was going through. And um, before I forget, one of the anyone that is, any of our listeners that are interested in transgenderism is there is a book put out called uh, uh, True Selves, which is uh, by Brown, and I forgot the other author, but it's a classic uh, um, book on transgenderism and, and the problems and things like that, and it's written for pretty much a cross-section of society so it can be understood. Well, that's good. That's good. Let's. Um, I'd like to pull um, Sam back into the conversation here and um, talk about, you know, support groups and, you know, how they're developed and, and you know, where are there um, some support groups, you know, that can help this particular population. And, um, sure. Sure. Um, well, to let you, you know, just kind of tie back in with a uh, previous uh, question you asked me is that uh, right now with our national uh, office, uh, we the national office is really working very hard currently to uh, – Develop the right programs, uh, not throwing things together. I uh, wanted to take that time to make sure that we get these programs uh, for families and individuals in place. Uh, as as we've heard from Kay and even with you, Lori, it is it is difficult for individuals uh, what they're facing. And so, uh, you know, specifically each chapter across the nation, we have over eight chapters, actually has support groups. Some chapters are doing better work uh, in the L. GBT communities and other chapters. Uh, you know, specifically, I can speak on the South Carolina chapter. We are literally at the uh, the, the front door uh, of trying to understand and develop these programs and services that uh, individuals in the LGBT communities need. Um, I know out in California uh, and some other chapters in that area, they are really setting the standard for what uh, the groups and support groups are. are, are for individuals that are needing those type of uh, care and support. Uh, here we're just getting started uh, with the help of Kay uh, and Lisa. Uh, we are really rolling up our sleeves and trying to understand what we need, as I said before. Uh, we currently do have support groups uh, nationwide. Every chapter has them, as I said. Uh, we have support groups here uh, in South Carolina, but we do not have any specific support groups uh, tailored to this uh, to, the, to the individuals in the, the communities here, and so that's where we are. I think, as a, on, a, on a national stage, uh, uh, we are trying to get our hands wrapped around Alzheimer's, and then we're also trying to get our hands wrapped around the very specific needs individuals and and families need across the nation. Uh, even with their own states, every state is different, and so uh, here in the Bible Belt, uh, we are working to really try to do a better job of reducing the stigmatism. I think we're doing a good job of that, but we've got a lot of work to do. So we have support groups, but as far as where we are as a South Carolina, we, we are, we're really starting to open a door, and with the help of Kay, actually, and Lisa, to help us do that. 
Okay. I, I would like to pose to our listeners, if anybody has any questions or comments, please use the chat box or you can call into 714-364-4757. That's 714-364-4757. And then you'll have to push one. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Again, the Alzheimer's Association is is looking at what are the needs. So the more chatter we can give them, uh, the better uh, the better we can uh, get these groups developed uh, for for people. Um, you know, and, and are these groups are they going to be a separate group where it is just transgendered people with dementia, or is it going to be a more diverse group? Kay, what is your thought on that? What would you like to see? Uh, well, basically. Uh um, the plan that I'm working on at the present is a uh, GLBT caregivers support group um, that that meets once a month or or, or whatever uh, to be able to to share experiences and to to be able to encourage each other. Um, and I, the hardest part of all of this is trying to identify um, those individuals uh, that might benefit from that kind of a program uh, because, as I said earlier, a lot of them uh, folks are, are afraid to step out because of the stigma and uh, don't come out of the closet. So I'm working with elder lawyers and, and and folks like that um, that uh, might know of, of clients and make them aware of our uh, desire to to start a group um, for fellowship and, and exchange of information and things like that, and uh, and have have medical people. Uh, make some presentations and stuff of that nature. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just wondering, you know, I we brought over the, the Memory Cafe from the U.K., and we've got that here in Minnesota, and that's a, um, a group where it's people with early memory loss and their, um, their care partner, and we just kind of sit around and have these normal, everyday cons- um, discussions, and we've right. built such a strong community and to me, I almost wonder if it makes sense um, going to, you know, these communities and just starting a group. And because a lot of people won't say that they have dementia, you know, um, if if they're transgender or not. I mean, people just don't talk about it. Right. So I think it's one of those right. things you have to put out there, and you, you can't give up. You still have to show up for the meeting, and over time, kind of that word of mouth and that comfort because, like you said, now you're going to have people with a double stigma coming out. But if you started in a safe group, you know, um, a safe community amongst yourself, right. maybe that might be easier for some people. Others may just want to go to a to just a regular old support group and not feel intimidated or uncomfortable um, because they're transgender. And so um, <clears throat> I think that that's, um, you know, that might be one one route to look at it, but I know with our um, memory cafe, I mean, we could have easily given up after three months because it was like, gosh, there's only a couple of people here. Um, but it takes time. 
It really doesn't. Uh-huh. It takes time and it takes effort. And during that time, we got to, even if it was just one or two couples, we got to get um, really build our relationships, you know, with them. And and that, I mean, they're just the foundation of the group now, um, and they believe so strongly in it. And so, you know, like I said, it it might not have to be real complicated. Um, and, and sometimes I think we make things more complicated than they are. You know, throw it out there and try it, and right. it works. You know, if it gets legs and walks, you know you're you're doing something right, and and uh, if not, tweak it. But I think sometimes when we um, put groups um, or projects together, we think that they have to be perfect before we launch them. And I just right. think the need is just way too great, and to let the group have input on what the group should be, because ahead of time we're we're just guessing. You know, with that, and so again, with our memory cafe, we we had one from one to three, and we had one from mm-hmm. six to seven thirty. And after a while, the group said, "Can we just have them both one to three? And we went, "Sure." You know, this is your group. You know, it's about right. meeting your needs. It's not about meeting the facilitators' needs. And and I think that's you know, if, if we stay with that focus when you're developing a group, it makes a huge difference, and it allows you to be flexible, to be able to meet meet the needs. Um, I'm going to ask Lisa what she would like to see in terms of a support group. Lisa, is uh, are you are you looking for some type of support group with with uh, dementia? I had been involved with a support group uh, here in the Somerville, South Carolina area, but that group sort of disbanded. Mm-hmm. And now I'm really looking to um, get involved with uh, memory people mm-hmm. on Facebook, and I find that that's a excellent. There's a, just a ton of resources there. People aren't forced to come out. You're not forced to go someplace. Um, but there is a tremendous need for support. Um, for even for respite care, just so say I want four hours to my just me time. Yeah, and that's important they're, they're for that just, balance. Right. Um, and with my illness, it's just I'm I'm limited in some aspects as to you know what I can and can't do. Um, but there is a severe lack of support for um, care partners in this area. Um, like your memory cafe, I'd prefer an afternoon group as to an evening um, for the simple reason I have trouble driving at night. Mm-hmm. Um, so something that's during the day would probably be more more helpful but the there's anonymity to a degree when you're using when you're communicating on Facebook mm-hmm. and that takes some of the stigma away um I've never felt the need to explain um in a support group that my spouse is transgendered 
Um, I usually refer to a K as my husband if I'm discussing it on memory mm-hmm. people or in a support group. And it's it's tougher here, and I know Sam would agree, in the Bible Belt, it's it's just another stigma because, mm-hmm. first of all, Alzheimer's. Second of all, you're not, I'm, you know, I'm not, I don't fit under the LGBT, LGBT umbrella. I'm heterosexual. Um, so they just, I, I think a, a diverse, a group where there's just generalized support would be appropriate. Um, uh-huh. like, like Kate said, a lot of the GLBT people are not going to come. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's worse in the South than it is in other areas of the country. Um, okay. South Carolina, and Sam can attest, is a very conservative state. Okay. Um, but as far as getting support from the doctors and neurologists and that, um, we've been truly blessed. Our primary and the neurologist are, it doesn't stand in, they don't look at the gender issue, they see the person. Mm-hmm. And, um, They've just been, they've just been, I can't say enough good things about either one of them. I mean, when there's advocacy been needed to get a certain medication or get patient assistance, paying for that medication, our, our doctors have been great. Mm-hmm. Uh, up in Rochester, um, the primary doctor that Kay and I were both seeing separately um dismissed me from his practice okay. because I was involved with K and he didn't oh. agree with that. Oh that's, so, that's it's gonna like be a, difficult. So yeah, as far as I mean as, so as far as groups right now you you don't have a physical group and you're using one in social media. Um right. but are but are you interested in having a physical group? To visit, if it can be the right mix? If it can be the right mix, yeah. Okay. Um, okay. It's like, and this is off subject a little bit, but I'm going to have to go for a sleep study in the near future to see if I have sleep apnea. I have mm-hmm. to take Kay with me mm-hmm. because there's nobody here to stay with her. Uh huh. And I'm expecting the medical people will be able to figure it out, seeing it's her neurologist's office is doing the study. Mm-hmm. But, um, so even you don't have you don't have respite at all there that you can tap into for someone yeah, but to. Yeah, it all costs money. It all costs money. Okay. And okay, and there's you don't have any group or friends that that would be willing to stay with Kay while you do that, I see. Okay. Um, um, Kay, friends, Alzheimer's comes 
and friends disappear. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, that happens, that, happens a lot, a lot with people. I'm going to go ahead and like, pull, pull Kay back into the conversation here. Um, so, Kay, as far as a group, do you do a lot on social media as far as connecting with people? Um, we have several active uh, GLBT groups that are in Charleston, and um, two of them have offered to advertise uh, the program that I'm trying to pull together uh, and uh, see what see what happens, you know, see mm-hmm. how many people come. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, after I threw in my preliminary work, I, you know, that that's the way I'll, I'll be doing it uh, is through advertising on their monthly uh, newsletters and, and magazines. And mm-hmm. uh, hopefully we'll have a, you know, a good, a good response. Um, mm-hmm. Down here in Charleston, uh, the GLBT community is right out there. I mean, they're not, they're not hidden or anything like that. They hold parades, they hold dinners, movies, and so on and so forth. And uh, you know, any any uh, legislation that comes up and things like that, they're right there demonstrating. And so, um, you know, that's encouraging. That there there are folks there that are willing to step out and, you know, be a part and say, you know, uh, hey, I'm I'm a human being. I'm just like you, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, I have the same desires and, and hopes and dreams as you do, and there's really nothing different between us. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the stigma that, that's there, you know, that, that people think that, you know, you got... You treat it as a leper in, in some mm-hmm. cases, you know, uh, unclean, particularly in a in the Bible Belt, where you know uh, uh, a lot uh, I've accepted. Uh huh. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and pull Sam back into the conversation here, because um, we want to wrap up our our hour here. Um, Sam, do you have some comments that you want to add about support groups and? I would, yes. Um, yeah, I think it's important that to know that you know, as we as association are working on a lot of things uh, to really reach uh, individuals in any capacity that we can to better serve them. Uh, we do have a lot of good support groups, and these support groups uh, nationwide are set up to be there to meet the needs of individuals and families that are facing Alzheimer's and dementia. Um, you know, Alzheimer's and dementia uh, doesn't really care who you are, or where they come from. Um, and, mm-hmm. and so these support groups are safe and confidential, and so we want to make sure people are connected and get connected if they need that. Um, and then we will be coming up with a lot of good things coming forward real soon uh, through the National Association, and there are a lot of good uh, work that's being done in, in the chapters now, so I would like to let listeners know that uh, please contact uh your local chapters to see what kind of work is being done uh, in those particular chapters, and they can do that through the uh, 800 number that we have, Helpline. Uh, okay. And, and so, yes, ma'am. 
I was just going to say the 800 number is 800-272-3900, 800-272-3900. Yes, ma'am. Okay. And we have a lot of other set up resources online uh, as well. The contact number that you had just given out for anyone that has a question about anything day or night, they can call that number and speak with uh, our professional care confidential uh, for any questions that they may have, uh, you know, please just, you know, I think the message I'd also like for anybody to know is that if you have some concerns or a family member concerns, um, talk to someone. Talk to anybody you need to to make sure that you get the potential answers that you're looking for, or at least the help that you may need. Uh, we with Associated here, uh, you, Lori, are doing a, a great job, and we're just very appreciative of, of what we're being allowed to come on today. I thank Kay and everyone else and Lisa for being to come up and have the courage to come out and speak on what they're speaking of. But people need to just know that uh, it's okay. Come out and let's let's talk about it so we can get that help and care that people need so we can move forward so they can order to prepare for their lives as they go forward. Yep, have have the conversations. I think it's very very important for people to to be able to do that. Um, we have on the page all different uh, contacts for the Alzheimer's Association. So the the main website, the www.alz.org. There's a caregiver center that is um, noted there, as well as the Alzheimer's Navigator. And do you want to tell people what they can find in the caregiver center and the Navigator? I can. The Caregiver Center is specifically designed, it's taken all of the pieces uh, on our website of the good information that we have, and it's actually put together in the Caregiver Center. So it helps uh, individuals when they're looking for certain information. They don't have to try to go point A, point B, point C. They can go into the Caregiver Center, and we have it condensed down where it's all all the information they could possibly be looking for would be in the caregiver center, anywhere from driving to behaviors to uh, progression of the disease, safety uh, uh, resources and, and support groups, everything that someone may need to look for, we put it into the caregiver center so they don't have to go looking for it. Um, with the navigator, it is basically an online assessment tool. So it's really designed for anybody who wants to, Instead of possibly even making that phone call to the association, if they want to go on there themselves and type in information into this navigator, it is an assessment tool uh, that the more information you put in, the more information you get out. Uh, and it's kind of one of those, it's almost a help call, but it's through the actual <laughs> Internet. Uh, so it's very good information um, in that sense. Um I also just like to, to make mention of the Alls Connected. I failed to send that to you, Lori, but the Alls Connected is the www.alzconnected.org. It is an online message board that anyone can actually go to uh, and speak to and find private and public groups that are speaking about Alzheimer's uh, and dementia, and it's a very good uh, piece of uh, tool that we have as well. I um, wanted to put that out there. Okay, great. And there... There also is a brochure that people can download um, for the LGBT caregiver concerns um, that I would recommend. Again, that link is is on on the front page here of the of the radio show. So go ahead and um, you know go to that link where you can download that as well and find some help. And again, let your voice let your voice be heard. Um, we can't get you help if we don't know what it is that you're really looking for. 
And so that's just a, a critical, critical piece um, to be able to find out about that. So I'm gonna. Uh, I thank you so much, Sam, for being with us, and um, I'm sure we'll connect in the future here. And Kay, um, did you yes. have any last comments that you wanted to make to the audience? Um, no, I, you know, if anybody is interested uh, in talking with me, um, I have an email, uh, which is kfox spelled out k a y e f o x at s c dot rr.com and I'll be happy to correspond with uh, anyone that has any questions or, or concerns or needs help in, in any way. Okay. Wonderful. Lisa, any comments that you have? No, ma'am. Okay. Well, thank you all for being with us today. I really appreciate your time and um and your full disclosure and honesty, I think that's just so important to be able to have these honest uh, honest conversations with people is just absolutely critical. So thank you again for, for being with us. I do want to remind people that we have a Dementia Chats webinar coming up, and that will be on the 9th at uh, 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, and that would be noon Pacific time. Those are free, and you'll be able to see those posted on the uh, the website and the blog. As far as future shows that we have coming up, on the 11th we're going to be talking about Dare to Care, and we'll have the author of that book with us along with a researcher uh, by the name of uh, Dr. Donald Moss who has some pretty interesting stuff he's doing. Uh, I think you'll want to listen in on that. <clears throat> and then on the 18th uh, we will be talking to uh, ADI, the Alzheimer's Disease International, uh, group at their conference over in Asia, and we're also going to learn about a new app called Balance that the Hebrew um, Home has put out. On the 24th, we are going to have the Awakenings program with Ecumen with us, and um, rolling into May, I can't believe that'll be here before we know it, uh, Tom and Karen Brenner, w uh, who are the authors of You Say Goodbye, We Say Hello, and Ellen Gerst, on grieving will will be uh, part of the show as well. I did post in the chat box um, something that I'm pretty excited about. Here in St. Paul, they had a contest for, it's called St. Paul Forever Challenge, and it was looking for a million-dollar idea. So I submitted dementia-friendly businesses and communities. And yesterday was the closeout of the um, of the registration, and so they had a big write-up in the St. Paul Pioneer Press um, with that, and they had, I think, over 900 entries. And of that, they highlighted, I don't know, 25 or 30 of which um, our dementia-friendly one was mentioned, which is great. So I put the links in the chat box, and if people would um, take time just to copy those down, go read the proposal and make a comment um, in terms of support of getting our community to be dementia-friendly, because even if it, even if you don't live in Minnesota or in St. Paul, um, you know, something like this is going to have an impact all around the world in terms of getting attention uh, for the needs that are out there. So we would love to, love to hear from you on that. In closing, I just want to say, again, thank you all for being so supportive. I, I absolutely love doing these shows, and 
um, love talking to people and, and connecting people. And we just, you know, are drawn to have this conversation together to make, to make the world dementia-friendly, to make it acceptable so that people don't have to lose their friends and don't have to go through this isolation and um, teach people how to live with the disease. So have a wonderful weekend. Keep in mind your memory chip and what that teaches you to focus on. Are they safe? Are they happy? And are they pain-free? And you can go to www.alzheimerspeaks and go to tools and pick up your free memory chip or just scope us out and see all the other wonderful information that we have posted there. Have a blessed day. Bye now. Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the way showers who will help your journey a lot easier.